Zaluki Contemporary is pleased to present new work by Montreal-based artist Pierre Dorian. For nearly four decades, Dorian's nationally renowned practice has explored the intersection between painting, architecture, and photography. Marc Lenteau, curator of the Musée d'Art Contemporain de Montréal, described Dorian's work on the event of his 2012 solo show as depictions that confound the viewer's sense of scale and perspective. Through his careful use of close detail and flat viewpoints, the walls, corners, and features of his scenes become pure fields of line, color, and shading, the formal elements of abstraction. The exhibition is open by appointment at Saluki Contemporary. Welcome to Momus the Podcast. We are your hosts, Sky Gooden and Lauren Wetmore. How's it going, Sky? It's hot. Uh, <laughs> I've just had to turn off the fan in order to do this recording, and I am not happy about it. Hot <laughs> <laughs> is cranky. It's, yeah, it's soupy over here. And it sounds like we've got another heavy hitter on decks for this, for this episode. Yeah, we're really reaching for the stars, um, and a few are in our grasp. I was able to talk to Coco Fusco this week, um, who's legend. So it was it was a powerful conversation, one that I was nervous to conduct, but I, uh, <laughs> I'm quite proud of what we moved through there. Um, I mean, I think Coco doesn't require too much introduction to our listeners, but you know, as artist, art historian, uh, educator. Um, provocateur. She has uh, <laughs> left like a fairly indelible mark, especially in her uh, insights um, spanning both the U.S. cultural political sphere and that of those of Cuba, mm-hmm. um, where she, uh, you know, her mom was a physician, her father as well, I gather, and uh, and she has been, you know, a, a historian and a cultural figure of import onto onto Cuba for about 35 years. So there was a lot to move through, both in in terms of uh, how it's been affected by this pandemic, the the kind of export that they've produced through their um, public health um, network and and the kinds of... um, What's the word? Uh, What's the word for like when a government's basically doing something really shite? (laughs) Exploitation. Yep. Crime. And the kind of... (laughs) Okay, let me go. And the kind of exploitation that um, has ensued. So it's another case of sort of the barn doors uh, blowing open in the storm and and sort of tracking where um, the fences were broken as a result. And of course, we cover other material as well, but that's sort of where we stake the conversation to begin. Did you cover the cultural climate in Cuba right now? Yeah, um, particularly through the example of an artist named Luis Manuel Otero Acantara, who uh, she's recently written about the uh, the bogus charges um, that he's facing and his uh, unlawful arrest, basically. Um, and the protest that has erupted around that, which is, you know, fairly, uh, let's say it's to be expected elsewhere mm-hmm. and f- completely novel for um, for Cuba to see this kind of vocalization from its cultural leaders, many, many of whom have worked in service of the government for, for however long, um, really mm-hmm. starting to uh, express their uh their deep descent of, of what's happened here around Alcantara. So we sort of pivot around that maypole, but there are many sort of ribbons that, that um, 
circle out from there. Wow, it sounds like this is a real banger of an episode. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, a real banger with like, unfortunately, too little laughter, but an important one all the same. Yeah, sometimes it's not funny. (laughs) Sometimes it's really not. Yeah. Well, on that note, here is Sky Good speaking with Coco Fusco. Before we get into some exploratory questions around this moment and the work that you do, I wonder if you can just tell me where you are and how has this been for you? Uh, Maybe in particular, you know, what has it been like to accommodate an entirely new mode of teaching on a hairpin churn? Uh, Well, uh, I am in Brooklyn, in New York. And uh, yes, I, like many other people uh, that teach, uh, had to move online in mid-March Um, I'm in the fortunate position that uh, I I teach at Cooper Union uh, in the School of Art, but my courses were not uh, completely undermined by the move online. One of my courses was uh, a seminar that was, you know, focused on reading and writing, so we could do that online. Um, The other Mm -hmm. one on performance, I just adapted the uh, syllabus for the second half of the course uh, so that students could produce videos on their own or um, try to perform in online environments, which many artists do. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, obviously it's not ideal. I, I much prefer to be together with my students, but you have to do what you have to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and also negotiate with the kind of emotional uh, response that uh, young people have had to Uh, being isolated, to having to spend a lot of time alone, to losing jobs that they need to support themselves while they're in school and so on. Um, But, uh, you know, as far as teaching goes, um, I don't feel like I'm in, you know, total jeopardy in terms of what I'm able to do. And a lot of time I've spent with my colleagues more recently um, planning for fall without knowing exactly what's going to happen because the governor of New York, Governor Cuomo, hasn't made any announcements about how much longer we're going to be sheltering in place and how much longer schools and businesses are going to remain closed. Mm-hmm. Do you, is it, a, you know, in your nature to be adaptable? Does this feel like a, a pivot that you've been able to achieve or how hard has it been? I don't have a choice. This is it. Yeah. Um, you know, we have, you have to contend with what you have and try to remain as um, optimistic and positive about it as possible, um, because otherwise I'm just going to transmit to my students a, a, a kind of negativity that will affect their ability to create. So mm-hmm. I don't want to do that. Um, I, I mean, I'm, I guess I'm sort of uh, fortunate in that, you know, I mean, if I were teaching in another medium, like if I, if I needed a wood shop or a metal shop or, you know, co- complicated equipment, uh, to create and to teach, then I would be in much worse shape, but I don't. Um, and so that has helped. Um, and, you know, it's helped me to, to make this adjustment. I also already worked a lot at home. I write at home. Um, I edit video at home. I rehearse uh, performances at home. So I'm not so uh, thrown by uh, having to work at home. 
Uh, mm-hmm. Some things, obviously, I can't do. I can't get on a plane and go somewhere and shoot a video. Uh, so that's something that I can't do right now. But I'm trying to focus more on what I can do. Mm-hmm. Um, I also have a teenage son who came home from boarding school because uh, everything got shut up uh, from where, where he was studying. And so I have not been 100% alone because I've been living with my son. So mm-hmm. that makes I think that makes it psychologically easier that I have a... A, an interlocutor, you know, on, on a daily basis, um, and somebody else to worry about, <laughs> um, not me. Right. Right. I'm curious what you were working on before this hit and if it too has had to adapt or has only been renewed in its urgency. Well, I mean, some things, look, I mean, you know, we got word in the middle of March and immediately the first thing that happened to me besides having to adjust teaching was that, um, all the gigs I had outside of school, so speaking gigs, this, that, exhibitions, everything froze. Many things were canceled, museum exhibitions postponed. So for a while, I was kind of like, whoa, <laughs> you know, my life just kind of uh, took a spin. Um, but then a lot of the, uh, I do a lot of public speaking and a lot of those lectures actually were restored as online lectures. I was going to go, for example, to... Um, the West Bank and uh, uh, to Daria Seer, this uh, nonprofit art space that Emily Yasser started uh, many years ago. And uh, we couldn't, I couldn't go because I couldn't fly, but Mm -hmm. um, I ended up doing studio visits with um, many uh, Palestinian artists online. And that was really fun. Um, So, you know, a lot of these uh, gigs changed to online situations. And so the cancellations that actually were, many of them were reinstated. Mm-hmm. Um, the, uh, exhibitions are postponed. Some deadlines, like I'm supposed to write, uh, a text for, uh, an artist who's going to represent New Zealand in the Venice Biennale. And I had a deadline coming up and then, you know, Monday it was announced that the Venice Biennale is postponed for a year. So I don't know what's happening with that, but I've been dealing with that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I also got like many artists bombarded with requests to do, um, oh, write something about pandemic or, you know, make an artwork about the pandemic and do this immediate, like the immediate response, right? And uh, I had some hesitance um, about that sort of thing of like, because you don't know what, you know, when you have an an emergency on this scale, you don't exactly know what it is in the right away. So I was somewhat tentative, but um, one nonprofit organization that I'm particularly fond of, uh, Printed Matter, uh, asked, they, they make a lot of money every year at a book fair that got canceled. And so it threw them into a total state of economic precarity, like many other nonprofits, but I, I like them a lot. Um, and so they've uh, decided to do some, you know, to create multiples that can be distributed in this online environment. And I decided to make something for that because I was, I'm interested in supporting them. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did make something that I probably wouldn't have made had there not been a pandemic. What um, did you make? I'm curious. Uh, it's a, it's a mo- predominantly audio work, but it has some visual. And I, I, I worked with a, a quote from, from the Chinese doctor, Li Wenliang, who was the whistleblower in mm-hmm. Wuhan. Um, mm-hmm. And then uh, so created something using that text as a basis um, so, uh, so I did that and I may do one other piece, um, 
something very small, again, um, just about uh, the pandemic and it's uh, and what's going on in, in Cuba. I wrote something for New York Review of Books about um, yes. the pandemic in Cuba. And mm-hmm. uh, so, yeah, I've done a, a few things, but I've just been um, careful not to make grandiose statements too quickly. Um, and I've also been every day... Um, as a kind of exercise, uh, doing some archival research into uh, representations of prior pandemics, um, mm-hmm. all sorts mm-hmm. of visualizations, visualizations of disease, visualization of treatment, visualizations of protective gear. Um, and there's every day. So every day I have like an image with a story that I um, post on social media. And it's been really kind of fun because I've gotten all these responses, some of them from art historians who are interested in the imagery that I've pulled up or the stories that I'm telling. Um, but I just, you know, I don't think that we're not, I, I think when, one of the things that I'm seeing, which doesn't really surprise me, but it's kind of interesting when these truths are borne out, um, is that uh, how we are responding to this particular pandemic is not different at all from how others, how, how other pandemics have been responded to in the past. Yeah. Um, and so I've just been looking at these kinds of parallels. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, there's so much I want to branch out from um, in, in terms of what you just covered, but maybe that's a good place to, to take up. Um, I read something quite elegant um, and concise about sort of the power of what you do, which is you incite us to think. And certainly this is a role that you're playing right now as both public intellectual and a kind of prompting historian. What do you wish people knew right now? What piece of history, if you sort of had to elevate one above the rest, that uh, do you think could best inform us right now? Well, I'm not a news gathering organization. Like I'm not, you know, Governor Cuomo, who, you know, gives these briefings every day on where we are. Mm -hmm. Um, But I also don't want to just sit around panicking about whether or not I'm going to get sick and die um, because that's not going to change anything. Um, But I, I, but I am, I have, you know, I do a lot of archival research in general um, when I'm uh, working on my art projects. And this has become a way for me to reflect on how art and artists um, respond to these kinds of crises Mm -hmm. Um, And it's also become a way to understand just how old fashioned we are. (laughs) Um, And that's always, for me, intriguing that we invest so much in in this belief in our superiority and cumulative knowledge. And in fact, we respond pretty much the same way that people did in the Middle Middle Ages. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, but again, I'm not like I'm not a doctor. And I'm not a public health official, so I I don't feel like my responsibility is to start telling people how to deal with the pandemic in a concrete, practical way. But I can think about how to Im- imagine this situation in a creative way. What ideally would you like to see institutions giving artists or asking of them right now, or even sparing them <laughs> right now? I mean... Just generally, how do you feel about the kind of compulsion to press artists into service? Well, some smaller institutions are in trouble financially, and they always ask artists to give freebies and to, you know, give donate work for auctions and 
all that all the all the time constantly yeah. and now there's even more of a reason to do so so i get it i understand where this is coming from right yeah. um i uh, i also you know you read the, i read the headlines just like everybody else so i know that um you know museums are cutting staff and that many of the many of the staff being cut are artists who are you know, working in a museum is their day job, whether it's as a preparator or as an educator or a docent or whatever. Um, and I know that there's a lot of anger about this. Now we're seeing the wave of, um, you know, adjuncts being uh, uh, not rehired or fired or cut um, from educational institutions, not just artists, everybody, right? Mm -hmm. And I, I understand that there's a lot of, how to put it, um, outrage demands that these institutions not do this. Um, you know, especially something like MoMA where, I don't know, the head of MoMA, I don't know how many million he takes home and he's got like a multi-million dollar apartment also thanks to the institution. And then, but they have to cut, you know, a janitor's salary. Right. And so there's a lot of kind of anger about the financial decisions being made by institutions. And I understand that anger. And I, uh, if it, it's, I'm filled with regret um, that these things are happening. Um, at the same time, I have to say it doesn't surprise me. Yeah. Uh, because I've lived through other recessions and depressions. You know, I remember what happened after um, the two, 2008 meltdown, financial meltdown. Um, you know, the art business was in very bad shape for a while, and something like 35 galleries closed in the fall of 2008. Um, and I, and also, you know, I remember the stock market crash in the late eighties. My mom lost her entire retirement account. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, people lost everything um, with the recession in the seventies. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm going to be turning 60 in a few couple of weeks. So like I have a memory of these other economic downturns and what it means. Um, so I'm, that's why I have to say that as much as I am filled with regret, about what is happening, it doesn't surprise me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Has any institution surprised you uh, for showing up, you know, heroically in this moment? No. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, philanthropists have turned around and made these special funds. That's nice. Mm -hmm. um, I, but, you know, the American handouts are like a couple thousand dollars. Yeah. $2,500, you know, I mean, I, I, I don't mean to spit on money, but honestly, uh, what am I going to, $2,000 is not even going to get me through a month of expenses in New York. Yeah. And I am not a high flying artist. You know, I, I have a, I bought a, a house that in what was a ghetto 20 years ago, um, in Bed-Stuy, you know, mm -hmm. and I, I live in my, my little house with my kid. We do have tenants and that helps. And fortunately, they are not unemployed, so they can continue to pay rent. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm not like I, I, I'm not like rolling in cash. But, you know, I, I mean, I don't know. None of this surprises me. Yeah. What is, um, I think, the most distressing to me is the uh, appallingly poor response from the Trump administration, mm -hmm. uh, the lack of global cooperation um, 
on in this. You know, instead, it's like Trump wanting to defund the World Health Organization and blame China. Um, you know, the Europeans kind of have already threw up their hands with regard to us. No cooperation between the United States and Canada and Mexico. Uh, you know, I mean, that kind of thing is just disheartening um, to me. It's so uh, infantile and yeah. uh, un you know, really unhealthy for everyone for there not to be uh, worldwide cooperation when you have a disease that's killing people all over the world. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm hoping that you could lend some insight into uh, how things have been in Cuba. I mean, because there are reports that the country is handling the crisis well for reasons, you know, to do with whether it's free universal health care or the world's highest ratio of doctors to population or state-controlled economy. But then there are obviously a lack of resources. There's hampered trade and obstructed access to international finance. And then on the other side, you've got authorities quashing criticism and issuing staggering fines, while there is a notable sort of international dispatch of medical missions to countries that have been hard hit. So there's a lot to cover there, but I, how are you cutting through and what is your read? Well, I've been doing research. My family's from Cuba. Um, mm -hmm. I grew up uh, with, you know, my relatives arriving and teaching English to cousins and having people ask me when I was in elementary school what my political views were on the Cuban Revolution. So I've been dealing with this all my whole life. And I've been conducting research in Cuba um, since the mid 80s. So now it's like 35 years. So I have mm -hmm. an historical perspective and a lot of contacts inside the country. And um, as internet access has grown and people have uh, gotten uh, access to the internet on their phones as of 2018, it's made communication, ongoing communication with Cubans much easier. Uh, uh, you know, I mean, I remember a time when I had to wait, you know, until four o'clock in the morning to get a line through to have a one minute phone call that was clearly going to be surveilled and, you know, in which we had to be very careful about what we were saying. Mm -hmm. And that's very different from being able to go back and forth on a WhatsApp chat with a bunch mm -hmm. of people, which is what I can do now. So, mm -hmm. um, but anyway, okay, so let's, so let's break it down. Okay. Mm -hmm. So uh, Cuba ha is very strong on um, preventative medicine. Mm -hmm. Uh, that's been because it's about uh, um, biopower and crowd control. And, you know, Cuba was a place where American soldiers were dying of yellow fever and malaria 120 years ago. Um, and there's been a big effort uh, to since in the second half from the second half of the 20th century onward to eradicate infectious diseases for, you know, not just for the welfare of the country, but for economic reasons to guarantee a, a, an able workforce and also because contending with epidemics is very expensive when you have them. So they, they're good on preventative medicine, but they're, uh, you know, this thing about having so many doctors for, per capita, there's two things you have to understand about it. First, medical missions right now are the highest grossing business for Cuba for export. It is one of the highest mm -hmm. sources of hard, uh, hard currency for the mm -hmm. government. It's right up there with remittances, okay, mm -hmm. and tourism, but tourism is now collapsed because of the mm -hmm. pandemic, okay? So they rely very, very heavily on the amount of money that the government gets per head, per doctor. It is not a um, beneficent donation 
to right. anybody. Governments pay for this, okay? And governments pay for it, and Cuba, the Cuban government keeps 90% of the money, which is what uh, why there has been a lawsuit pending by several doctors against the World Health Organization, because many of these missions are managed by a program that is a subdivision of the World Health Organization. Because the, as far as those doctors who are party to the lawsuit are concerned, they are treated like um, uh, slaves um, made to work for grossly substandard wages. Um, their passports are taken away when they arrive in a foreign country, they are surveilled by security agents that travel with them and they are informed on. They are not allowed to leave uh, where they are living at night. Um, you know, and and uh, they do not receive their salary while they are working. The bulk of what they get is held like, uh, you know, sequestered funds in wow. Cuba until they finish their missions and go home. So if you defect, you lose the money, okay? So these are the reasons why people complain. Now, I know Mike Pompeo, who I detest, has gone on and on and on about this stuff, and I'm not trying to say that I am in favor of the Trump administration's policies at all. I'm just stating facts about the nature of the work contract for these doctors, and going on the missions is not a voluntary thing either. Mm -hmm. So it's just important to, like, know what's happening, that there is, you know, I'm not going to deny that the services provided are often needed, but, uh, and, and I have said that in what I have written, but I think that the work can, you know, we have in the same way that, uh, uh, you know, uh, guest workers in uh, the United Arab Emirates or wherever in the Middle East uh, have their passports taken away when they go to build buildings or do childcare or what have you, um, and we complain about those labor conditions, I think we can equally make a case that the labor conditions to which Cuban doctors are subjected on those missions are, are questionable. The other thing is that, um, and this I can only, I, I've seen one news report about it, and then I can say anecdotally, that uh, whereas there are some doctors in Cuba who are highly trained and performed sophisticated operations on a lot of politicians like that come from other countries like Evo Morales and so on, um, the medical training for Cuban doctors is not uniformly like super high standard. In other words, many of them are kind of glorified nurses. And uh, this was noted actually in a Spanish report after a mission arrived in Spain that uh, many of the doctors were kind of pushed aside when it was recognized that they were not up to par. I cannot tell you the number of requests I get on every month from friends and relatives for medicine because they don't have it there. And they want me to get the medicine and somehow or other ship it to them, mm. right? So, you know, yes, they have a lot of doctors, but they don't have enough anesthesia to do operation. Yes, they have a lot of doctors, but they don't have sh clean sheets because they're punishing people who dissent from the, the, the state's position. That gives me the re reason to suspect that they have things that they want to hide. And one right. thing that I know that they really want to hide is that social distancing is virtually impossible um, mm -hmm. because people have to wait online for hours for food because they have to, there's no more transport, um, you know, readily available. So there's people standing in crowds, but also the way that Cubans live, the dense urban density is such, especially in, 
older neighborhoods in in uh, in Havana and elsewhere that I mean it's just impossible. So you know, I I, I mean I hope you get my drift here. Mm-hmm. This mm-hmm. is a very complicated situation. Um, you, you know, it, we're not talking in Cuba about a situation like what happened recently in Guayaquil in, in Ecuador, where there were cadavers throw, being thrown in the street. I, I don't think that things are kind of that macabre in terms of the pileups of dead people. But, you know, um, there was transmission from foreigners. There were also many Cubans who came back to the country um, at the beginning who had been abroad visiting or living and came back and were infected and then infected their relatives. I mean, that's basically how the virus has gotten into the country. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's uh, pretty much how I see the situation. Yeah, no, I mean, it's all a deeply valuable insight. So thank you for, for going through those points with me. And I know that just to sort of um, shift focus slightly into Cuban public culture, you've also recently shone a light on a kind of seismic shift uh, with Otero Alcantara and the role that protest, the methods of which are typical elsewhere, as you noted, but new to Cuba, the role that protest played in suspending his charges of flag desecration You also pointed out how the artist's insistence on his right to make the art that he wants breaks a silent rule in Cuban culture that if one speaks of politics, one can only do so without speaking of power. And I wondered if you could tell us more about what you mean by that. Um, Well, actually, that comes from uh, a Canadian uh, theorist, Yvonne Hmm. Grenier, who uh, is a Cuba expert. Um, Mm. And he's written a lot of, he's written quite extensively on Cuban cultural policy. And he's the one who said that. And I thought that was a really succinct way of Mm. um, explaining the situation. Um, But just to go back for a moment to uh, one minor correction. So uh, Luis Manuel Otero Alcantara was, uh, had two counts against him. One was for property damage and the other was for flag desecration. But in any case, what, is important about this whole process is that um, people spoke up from the island uh, and people who you wouldn't have expected to uh, uh, take a position publicly against a government uh, uh, attack um, on someone who was being constructed as a pariah. Uh, You know, I, I would expect his friends to come to his aid, but I wouldn't have expected that very famous artists who have always been allies of the government would go on Facebook and say, hey, this is like really wrong. And, you know, this kid should be not be in jail. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's what happened. And that's what's different is that um, a, a, a number of intellectuals and artists from a broad political spectrum inside Cuba came forward. Um, to uh, to speak against the government. And that's the kind of thing, I know for a fact that uh, the Ministry of Interior is very concerned about this. Um, in the past, they were much, it was much easier for them to isolate people who they sought to squash in some way. Um, and um, they told uh, uh, Luis Manuel's uncle, who is an, an, an activist and, an, and a lawyer, was brought in and was detained for a couple of days 
not that long ago, maybe two, three weeks ago. And during his detention and interrogations, the um, security agents were saying to him that they did not want another blow up um, like the one that had happened over over Decree 349 and uh, Luis Manuel to occur with uh, Decree 370, which uh, has to do with um, posting on the internet. Um, and that's what is the kind of focus of attention right now among artists and journalists. So I know that, there, you know, that tells us that um, state security is watching very closely um, this, uh, these mobilizations, these online mobilizations, um, and is concerned about them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's interesting, too, the role that art criticism seems to have played. Um, however, minor a role, I don't know. So I wonder if you could talk a bit about that, because you do sort of touch on it in that same hyperallergic piece where um, I'll quote you here. You say, it's not unusual for Cuban artists and writers to be harassed by state security, excluded from professional opportunities and publicly shunned. But this time, the artist colleagues on the island mobilized in the artist's defense and art critics penned essays on the importance of Otero Alcantara's work and the long history of treatment uh, of political symbols in art. So I wonder if you can talk to me just a bit about the role that art criticism has played in the last decade or two in uh, Cuban art and how it's contributed perhaps uniquely to this seismic shift, as you say, in Cuban public culture? Well, I don't think it's that different from how art criticism works anywhere else. I mean, art criticism helps to legitimate, uh, in some cases, helps mm -hmm. to legitimate practices that are, um, are new, are controversial, um, that intersect with social and political issues, um, you know, if no one who, who is a, considered a bona fide expert comes forward to say, hey, this, these things, you know, these yogurt container covers on the wall are art, as, as happened with a show by Gabriel Orozco many, a long time ago, or, you know, this um, Rikriti of Tiravanesia cooking, making soup in a gallery, that's art. If, if critics don't come forward and say that they recognize these uh, gestures at, that are maybe unfamiliar because they don't conform to tradition. If they're not recognized as art, then it's much harder to kind of stake a claim to making art and to being an artist, right? So that, I mean, that's how the, the experts function everywhere. In the context of the Cuban art scene, there's an added layer to this in that the legitimation can serve as a kind of, can be a protective mechanism that will, um, you know, enable somebody like Luis Manuel to be appreciated and viewed as an artist as opposed to being viewed as a hooligan, which is what the authorities keep trying to cast him as, right? Now, you know, in the American context, we've had some brushes with similar situations. I think of uh, Critical Art Ensemble when Steve Kurtz was arrested and accused of bioterrorism um, because of the bio art that he was doing and the fact that he had made a kind of homemade laboratory in his house. And uh, the FBI agents that came to his house thought that, you know, he was cooking up a bomb or making, um, you know, doing things that were, this was in the early days after the uh, Patriot Act. And so, you know, there was a, a lot of hysteria. So, um, and yeah, they thought he was, you know, like it was an anthrax lab or something. Mm -hmm. So, you know, at, at that time, 
uh, the artists who were defending him were writing a lot about Steve Kurtz and critical art ensemble and trying to explain why these lab experiments did constitute artwork and why he was doing them and why it was a legitimate endeavor. Mm -hmm. So it's not like Cuba is the only place in the world where art criticism can be mobilized for political purposes, right? It's just mm -hmm. that, you know, public life in Cuba is politicized. Mm -hmm. The government owns public space right? The government controls public discourse. So if you are going to operate in public space as an artist, then you're going to end up in some kind of political confrontation, whether you like it or not in that country. Uh, and, you know, I mean, people who are in love with Cuba just go on and on about free education, but, you know, it's free education in a totalitarian state <laughs> mm -hmm. where the state can determine on the basis of political criteria who can get that education, number one, and then who can be an artist, number two, and then what kind of art can be offered to the public, number three. And what you have now are a lot of artists who are kind of chafing at that control and wanting to um, take back ownership of the identity of artists and have the right protected for them to create and present in private spaces of their own, if they so wish, uh, without government involvement, and ultimately also in public space as well. Right. And, and that's uh, that's where that's what's happening. And that's where, you know, the critics come in to build a case for this or to knock it down. Mm -hmm. You've um, you have talked in the past about how politics are a sculptural material. And I know that, you know, in your hands, it can be made um, satire as well. But of course, social practice art has, as you also have pointed out, become quite faddish, at least in uh, the U.S., certainly in Canada, that's true as well, but that in Cuba, it's the symbolic equivalent of a Molotov cocktail, which I just, I loved the, the piercing quality of that, that just cut through and really put things in their proportional place. But I wonder if we, if we shift our gaze to the U.S. and its own and numerous crises at the moment, I wonder if you have any hope for a revitalization of the ideals that are wrapped up in social practice art. Like what would it take to return to its ethos and, and sort of shove away from its faddishness or is, if such a reversal could even be possible well, if the context I mean, is dire enough. I don't blame the artists. Uh, you know, I just think that our institutions have a way of doing this, right? That, you know, they hit on something that is very kind of expedient for, for them, right? Mm. And social practice uh, projects can be run through education departments, so you don't have to go through curatorial and deal with all of the conservatives wow. in curatorial. Um, they don't represent, for the most part, an acquisition problem, right? Because you don't, there's nothing to collect uh, at the end of the project. Um, they for the for, for philanthropists that want art that serves a purpose and engages with communities other than the super rich that buy art you've got. So, you know, there's all these reasons why certain kinds of social practice projects are kind of good for museums. They kill many birds with one stone. They don't present a lot of problems um, if they're safe, right? Mm -hmm. uh, they attend to, you know, for museums that are under the gun because they don't have a very strong connection to minority communities or poor communities, 
all they do have to do is get a social practice project that engages some underrepresented community and take lots of pictures of it while it's happening and, you know, problem solved, right? So, the, the, I mean, this is what I mean about the sort of it becoming faddish. Um, but the, the, the deeper problem for me is really about uh, the way that social practice projects, and this is not, I don't think this is the intention of the artist, but it's the result of the way that they have been inserted into the social, that many social practice projects are function as substitutes for social services that have been cut by neoliberal governments. So if there are budget cuts in education, then you got and you got social practice projects where artists come and teach kids who are disabled or marginalized in some way, you're kind of re replacing what should be a social program with an art project, right? Mm -hmm. And this this is this has happened a lot, uh, and that is where I um, where I have you know problems that I, like I don't want. Uh, you know, I mean, it's great that we have soup kitchens, but it's horrible that we don't have a government program that ensures that people have enough to eat. Mm -hmm. you, you understand what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so that you, uh, in, 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 make, in wanting to do good, one has to ask, am I doing good or am I ultimately doing harm by providing an outlet and a substitute for something that should be a public program? And I think that that's, uh, you know, something else to be concerned with. In Cuba, the thing is that these independently initiated endeavors that engage publics and build um, a kind of uh, civil society outside of government channels are, you know, they're, to me, they're the most kind of legitimate uh, uh, pro-democracy endeavor, for lack of a better term, that's happening in Cuba. The, the groups that claim to be uh, political dissidents have very little traction on the island. Um, they don't have a lot of, of very strong following. But the art initiatives that are about creating a civil society, opening up a space for debate, publishing online and having dissenting voices speak, being critical of the system, doing investigative reports, it, all of that kind of thing. It's like they're they're rehearsing uh, uh, what what one might hope for in a more democratic society with more civil liberties. And uh, so, and that's what I mean about the Molotov cocktail because they're kind of running a parallel system um, to the government one that claims to to be everything for everyone. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, do you feel more hopeful or less? I mean, I think there's been a kind of performance of, of, uh, of change for, for quite some time, at least in the art world that we share. But I, I do see renewed urgency and a kind of revitalization of the terms. How do you feel? Um, well, we're, move, we're plunging into a very serious uh global economic meltdown. I think that we're going to have a very serious recession, if not a depression in the United States in the next year or two, at least, if not longer. And in periods of economic downturn, historically, in the United States, there have there's been an uptick of activist oriented art activity and more attention to it, because mm -hmm. more people in upper echelons 
recognize the pervasiveness of the problems that we have and the urgency of the need to do it. I mean, when you go to, when you have 25% of the population applying for unemployment, which is where we are now, and that's a higher number percentage than during the depression of the 1930s, you know, you have a very serious problem. Um, and so, you know, if uh, these, and what happened in the 1930s, we had a federally funded program in which mm -hmm. artists participated. Artists were commissioned to create murals. Artists were commissioned to take photographs. Artists went out into the field and did interviews with slaves and created an incredible archive. So yes, I expect that as part of the um, sort of contending with an imminent depression, that there's going to be an, uh, an increased interest from the patrons of art in government and in private philanthropy um, for artists to step in and to um, attend to these things, to tell the stories, to find ways to engage people, to represent the experiences of that are somewhat more abject um, than, you know, happy pictures of your dog or whatever. Right. Yeah. So. So, yeah, I expect that that's coming um, at the same time. I am uh, kind of appalled by the political landscape, by the resurgence of fascist movements worldwide, by the in seeming inability of most intellectuals and artists to actually look at that very seriously and understand what that means. Um, you know, I mean, there's a, we live in a world, people have very short memories. They don't even remember uh, uh, what the second world war was like, or, you know, I mean, they just don't. Um, and that's terrifying. And I was just having a conversation with a colleague from Eastern Europe yesterday or the day before in which she was telling me, and she's older and, you know, was, was around during solidarity and such, and, you know, in the transition from in Eastern Europe, from, um, being, uh, controlled by the Soviet Union to, uh, becoming, um, autonomous nation states. And she said, you know, not even there is there an active memory of the years of first of fascism, you know, but from the Germans and then of the years of the, uh, the authoritarianism of the Soviets. So, you know, that's the part that worries me is mm -hmm. that uh, we don't seem to be very good at uh, using history <laughs> to prevent things from returning. Um, and particularly, I think Americans are extremely naive in this regard and they just refuse even intellectuals refuse to believe that we are marching toward fascism but you know i don't see any other way to describe what's going on in washington right now the utter implosion of the state department the collapse of congress uh the in, the intransigence of the senate um, the the you know the policies at the border, the xenophobic uh, policies at the border, the uh, kind of acceptance of neo-fascist uh, uh, groups uh, on the rise all over the country, the failure to pass any kind of uh, gun control laws. I mean, I, you know, what else do we need here? You have to have you got to see swastikas. Uh, you know, to, before you believe what that what's happening, and that that troubles me very, very much, mm -hmm. is that there is not 
more organized, more recognition of what's going on politically and more of an organized mobilization against what is happening. Moments the Podcast is edited by Jacob Irish, features original music by Kyle McRae, and assistant production from Mitra Sheram. We would like to thank Coco Fusco for her contribution to this season. Readers, listeners, we still need you, so please consider making a one-time donation to Momus by contacting me, Sky Gooden, at momus.ca, or a monthly donation for as little as $1 or $5 per month through patreon.com slash momusart. If you like our work, please help us make it. This has been episode 21 of Momus the Podcast. <laughs>